The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, the Open Hearts by Jane Seymour Mother's Day Necklace Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Harper, who is six, and Lyra, who is now nine. Happy birthday, Lyra. Oh, happy birthday, Lyra. I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, and the mother of Harry, who's five, Sam, three, and Wally, one. Hey, Allison. Hey, how's it going? Good. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Emily Bazelon about sexual assault on campus. Should high schoolers and their parents consider a school's sexual assault history when deciding on colleges? We'll also celebrate Mother's Day as Allison will pass judgment on seven possible Mother's Day gifts uh, that I'm going to spring on her. Plus, parenting triumphs and fails, a calling question about talking with kids about non-traditional families, and our recommendations. If you've got topics you want us to discuss or you have questions you want to ask, please email us at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at Slate.com. Or if you have a question you want us to answer on the air, please leave us a message at any time at our voice mailbox, 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. It's easy to remember because it's what Allison is to me. Okay, so let's start with triumphs and fails. Um, I have a minor parenting fail. Um, not a big one, but one that seems emblematic of uh, of our family life in general. Um, so uh, Game of Thrones is on Sunday nights, Allison, as and you, you let may your may kids watch. And our kids are <laughs> actors in the show. No, um, we uh, we watch it right after the kids go to bed because it's on at nine and the kids go to bed at 830 and we're not going to wait to watch Game of Thrones. We're going to watch fucking Game of Thrones. Right. And so, uh, so, you know, the kids go to bed and we go basically we go right downstairs and we turn it on and and uh and several weeks in a row now lyra has like come to the top of the stairs and been like can you stop playing that scary music because it'll be like dun 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 and so we like turned it down a little bit but this past sunday i'm not going to spoil who this happened to but someone got a sword smashed through their head so that it came out through their mouth in game of thrones and alia screamed and i like laughed in delight uh, and we were really loud, and then Lyra came to the top of the stairs and said, can you tone it down, please? And that was my parenting fail for the week. That's not so bad. I thought you were going to say she so... saw, that you like turned around and noticed that she saw. No, I mean, it's, it's not long before she'll see something totally t- horrible on the TV, but like just the fact that my child has to ask me to tone down Keep my down. inappropriate reactions <laughs> to horrible violence and sex on TV is like, it's not like a great step in my parenting. Right. Okay. I'll accept that as a fail. Uh, I also have a fail. Sorry, listeners. I feel like we usually balance each other out if you have a fail, I have a triumph. But uh, I... <laughs> So I, Harry had been taking swimming lessons, and then we stopped, and I never signed up again. And finally, I got my act together to sign up, and we showed up twice. And the lesson we got there, and the lesson was canceled. The first time, the woman was like, "I'm so sorry, I didn't realize the pool was closed today." And then the second time, we got there, and there, and a private party had rented out the pool, and she was, you know, the teacher was apologetic, but not like incredibly apologetic, just like apologetic. <laughs> and I lost my shit. And I didn't, I wouldn't say I yelled exactly, but I was like (laughs) quite angry and stern with this young woman. And it freaked Harry out. Like he was totally freaked out that I 
did that, and he was upset. And, like, all day he kept saying, uh, the teacher's name is Becky, and all day he just kept saying to me, like, I was disappointed about Becky, but I wasn't mad at her, right, Mom? You were, we were just disappointed. <laughs> like, he was trying to convince me not to be mad, and he's always talking about how Becky seems so fun, and isn't Becky nice? So... A, you know, I, I feel like I, I lost my cool in front of my son. I feel like I had every right to be angry, but I sh- should have probably expressed that in a phone call. But later. why? Why can't Harry know that you were angry at this person for, like, screwing up? I guess. I also, like, I completely sort of, I, I, li- I also lied in front of him because I wanted oh. her, to, her to feel really bad. So I told her that we had spent, like, all morning psyching him up because he was really scared to swim, which is not true. He's so excited about these lessons. And he was like, what? What? What would you say, Mom? There's your fail. Okay. There's your I got fail. to yeah, it. Yeah. And Good then one. also Good just, one. like, a tiny follow-up fail since it's also related to swimming is that the next weekend when we finally did have this lesson, that morning before the lesson, I turned on the TV for the kids to put on a show and I always change it quickly to New York One because it's usually on you know HBO from the night before or something and I quickly right. turn it to New York One so they don't see anything you know Game of Thrones like before right. we figure out what show they're going to watch and it was just a woman talking into a microphone saying drowning is the number one cause of death for children <laughs> and Harry said what? and I like quickly turned it off and he said kids drown and again I lied and I said no kids don't drown don't worry and John was really really thought that was horrible because we should teaching him that water is a dangerous thing and that's why right. he just swim. So fail, fail, fail. <laughs> wow. Uh, maybe John should just take over swimming lessons, like, overall. <laughs> Alright, that's a great fail. Thank you. Alright, well, let's go to our first topic. Allison, you've got this one. Anyone who read this past Sunday's New York Times saw a huge front page story on campus sexual assault. It was not the first. It seems like you can't go a day without reading about another terrible case of a school mishandling and alleged rape, and all of a sudden, college seems like a very dangerous place to send our daughters. Slate's own Emily Bazelon has been reporting on this issue for years and is joining us on the phone from New Haven to talk about how parents should think about campus sexual assault when helping their kids pick a school. Hey, Emily. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So in April, a dozen House members sent a letter to U.S. News & World Report asking the publication to include sexual violence stats in its college rankings. And they wrote, For parents in particular, safety is one of their first concerns before considering any institution, but it's difficult for them to find the objective information they need to make a decision about which institution is best for their child. So I'm curious, A, if you think this is a good idea, And also, what is the important stat parents should be looking for? Is it about the number of reported rapes, or is it more about how schools investigate those allegations? It's more about how schools handle the allegation. I mean, I really sympathize with parents wanting more information about this. I worry, though, that if we turn to the most obviously available statistics, they will wind up being misleading. Um, And I think what really matters the most is whether schools have a dedicated one-stop place where students can go for help. Um, So when I was reporting on this a whole decade ago at Yale, at that point, Yale didn't have an obvious sort of rape crisis person. They had, you know, there was like a student hotline, and certainly in New Haven, there was aid for rape victims. But there was no one dedicated at the university for dealing with students' Um, feelings about sexual assault and sexual harassment. And that the university has since changed that. And it was that model from other schools that seemed to me when I was reporting this to be the most important thing that a school could do. From the coverage, a parent could easily think that there's way more sexual assault happening on campuses now than ever. Is that true? 
No, I mean, the statistic that is out there is that one in five college women can expect it to be, have, see, this is the problem. It's one in five, but then what is that about? It's actually a statistic that covers things like, um, you know, touching and attempted assault as opposed to actual rape. And so I think it's true that there is a lot of unwanted sexual stuff going on, especially when students are binge drinking. But the notion that this is like a sudden epidemic is not true. It's that there is this big burst of awareness going on right now. So it's a good thing. Right. It's hard to argue that awareness is a bad thing, even if it leads in some cases to a possibly inflated statistic. That's true. I mean, this goes back to this problem, too, I think, of misleading numbers, which is that at schools that are doing a good job with education and prevention, you often see see higher levels of reported numbers because students are coming forward. And we know that coming forward is a huge problem, that historically um, women in particular have, or men also, in fact, have not done that. So when you see the reporting rates rise, that can actually be a good sign that students are feeling more comfortable. Oh God, that's like that's such a crazy inversion of what you might think that like if U.S. News ended up reporting rates of sexual assault cases, that what they're actually reporting is how comfortable students feel reporting their own sexual assault cases to an administration who has become more friendly to those reports. Exactly. And there's like, to get just a little in the weeds here, there's a further wrinkle to this, which is that there's this federal law called the Cleary Act that requires schools to report crime statistics, not just sexual assault, but including sexual assault. And it's a kind of complicated law. You have to report stuff that happens in student in university buildings, but also buildings that student organizations use that are, like, important to the operation of the school. So it gives schools actually an incentive not to report things, right? Because if you have a high number under the Clery Act, that kind of looks bad, when in fact we want schools to include lots and lots of buildings. We want to make sure, for example, that fraternities are included in the statistics, since we know that a lot of sexual assault tends to happen there. And so again, there's sort of this weird problem of the incentives you set up for a school to kind of shut its eyes to a problem, as opposed to making sure it's really addressing it. So as the mother of two boys, uh, Emily has a son age 11, 14. Do you think about what you'll tell them about sexual assault when you're sending them off to college? Or maybe you talk about, you're planning to talk about it with them sooner. Well, my poor children are kind of exposed to more of this talk than is probably good for them. But yeah, I do think about it. I mean, I think it's so important for boys to understand what consent really means, that it's not It doesn't mean that you can take for granted that if someone doesn't say no, they have actually said yes. And, you know, honestly, while I don't want to exaggerate the problem of false accusations of rape, because while they happen, they're rare, it is true that boys can put themselves into a lot of jeopardy by being with someone if they're really drunk, if the girl is really drunk, if it's really not clear what happened. It is possible that girl can wake up the next morning, regret something she wasn't clearly not saying no to, and then turn on the boy and accuse him. So I do want my sons to both be really protective of women and their rights and freedoms and also protect themselves. And so I'm the dad of daughters, um, right? And so when they go off to college um, at some point in the future, should I ever be able to afford college? Um, (laughs) Financially, Dan, that could be in your future. Right. But so then I have, you know, an entirely separate but related set of issues to talk to them about. And I mean, you know, I'm 
going to try and do research, but it seems like in the long run, any research I can do is basically into what schools are handling at the best at that particular time. But what is what's like the number one thing I should be telling them? Is it just be careful? Is well, it just know really who to talk to, to should something happen? Too. But, you know, our colleague Emily Yaffe wrote a piece in the fall in which she was arguing that we need to arm girls with more information about the risks they take when they go binge drinking because there's such a clear conne- connection between binge drinking, being totally blotto, and being vulnerable to sexual assault. And, you know, I basically agree with Emily on this. I think that while it's super important not to make girls and women feel like they're to blame if an assault happens because it's not their fault, um, whatever their condition, I also think you can reduce your odds significantly by not putting yourself in a position where you're with people who can't be trusted and you're like virtually unconscious or you just can't control what's going on around you because you're out of it. Um, I mean, that just seems like obvious to me as something we would want to tell our daughters to make sure that they are safer rather than not. I mean, the same as you tell you know, kids not to walk in a dangerous part of town at 2 a.m. by themselves. But, Allison, what do you think about this? Because I know you had kind of a different take on this than I did. I didn't have an entirely different take. I mean, I think that I, you know, I didn't have an entirely different take. I think that there was there was a study this year in Canada. Uh, it wasn't about just about college kids. Um, I think it was, I, I don't remember. I think the people in the study were in their 20s. But these researchers went to bars and identified um, kind of how... <laughs> Uh, inappropriate sexual behavior was happening. And what was happening, what they found, is that it wasn't drunk men uh, taking advantage of women. It was predators, <laughs> sober predators, taking advantage mm. of drunk women that they identified. You know, it's not, it's one in five women, they, this stat says, are sexually assaulted, but it's, it's not that they are sexually assaulted, but it's not that there are one in five men doing the assaulting. As right. Amanda Marcotte, you know, pointed out in Slate a couple of weeks ago, there, you know, it's a much lower number. Every man around you isn't out to, out to attack you. It's, it, these are, you know, violent uh, predators who rape women and they are looking for, uh, you know, prey. <laughs> and so I do think that, well, I understand that focusing on the message of what women can do to not get raped <laughs> Sound um, is can in some ways be a part of the narrative of blaming the victim, which is a, which is still a real thing as we see in like these horrible court cases that come out where a judge you know sentences the there's a there's a case going on now where a judge just sentenced a rapist to uh, probation for raping a 14 year old girl who she said basically you know well this girl had sex before yeah this girl asked for it so I do think like that's that's it's still a real issue and it's something we need to focus on however I you know if I had daughters I would definitely be trying you know by be telling them that like these guys are looking for you if you're drunk right exactly I mean that seems pretty much like common sense and I think the hard part is figuring out how to incorporate that in rape prevention and education on campus without taking the responsibility off of men, because it needs to be really clear, um, you know, that that men have to watch out here and be careful. Um, so it seems like a lot of the narrative that I hear on this issue is, you know, schools like my alma mater, North Carolina, where where sexual assaults 
where sexual assault victims often have felt in recent years like their cases are being swept under the rug or at Columbia where that has been happening or at Harvard where a teacher was recently said she was denied tenure because she was helping sexual assault victims. Do you feel like at all these schools where stuff like this is happening, is the administration just blind or stupid or dumb or what is going on at these places? Well, there are a few schools I've gotten really suspicious of, um, in particular Florida State University, where there was this complete mishandling of a sexual assault allegation against Jameis Winston, who's their star quarterback, and it's just really hard for me not to conclude that the school was treating him differently because he was this amazing athlete, and that I find incredibly depressing. But I think more generally... To, to be fair to the schools, they are in a tricky position here. I mean, you know, they're not the police, and yet they have this independent legal obligation under the law, Title IX, to investigate and to decide whether to meet out discipline. They're not using the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt that we have for putting someone in prison, but it's a serious consequence to suspend or expel a student who's been accused. And they're struggling with how to balance the rights of people who've been accused with the rights of victims. Now, I think in these cases, you know, you read the story about Columbia, and it seems like they did not um, get that one right. But I do think... These are generally pretty well-intentioned administrators. It's not like they're out to get um, the female students who are coming forward. I think it's more that they have not figured out how to make sure that victims feel supported, um, and yet at the same time that they're not putting that they're not going too far in. Um, punishing male students when they don't have really solid proof of wrongdoing. And part of this is just the very tricky nature of, you know, date rape, which is like a real thing. It is rape, but it often comes down to, you know, the classic he said, she said scenario where there's no physical evidence and there are no witnesses, and it's just really hard to pin guilt on someone. In college and in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you, Emily, for uh, for calling in and talking to us about this. Of Thanks, course. Emily. Listeners, we want to hear from you too. So please email us at momanddad at slate dot com and tell us what you think. And tell us, especially if you are in the middle of college planning, is this something that's that's been on your radar? Is this something that will be on your radar um, for parents of boys and girls? What what? How are you going to approach this as your kid approaches college? All right, well, let's go to our call-in question. Remember, if you have a question that you want us to answer on the air, please give us a call at any hour. Leave us a message at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. Our question this week comes from listener Rose in New York. Take it away, Rose. Hi, my name is Rose. My question is, um, do you, either of you, proactively talk to your children about families that are not like your family? Um, so it seems to me that you both have, you know, biological children and opposite sex parents. Um, do you talk to your families about adopted children, multiracial families, same sex parents, kids in foster care, or just other family situations as quote unquote non-traditional families, you know, where the burden and stigma of explaining themselves. So to explain to your kids might be helpful, but, uh, I wonder what's your opinion on whether you think that's something that all parents should do or if you think it's difficult. 
That's a great question. Um, I, for a while in our family, we were a little bit shy about it, and I don't really understand why. Like, it just seemed at some point like we were shy about letting the outside world intrude on our own little family. But then at some point, we sort of both jointly realized that was dumb. I mean, I think maybe around the time the Lyra was five and Harper was three. And we started very actively talking about other families, other ways that families can be, um, other kinds of parents, other other families with more kids or less kids or foster kids or adopted kids or same-sex parents or single parents or older parents or younger parents to the extent now that I think we sort of more frequently, you know, we're very conscious to be inclusive in our conversations now, sometimes comically so to the point that we'll be like talking about some hypothetical family with one gay dad and two adopted children. And it won't be clear to our children that what we're actually trying to talk about is our own family. And I worry that sometimes they think that our family now is kind of boring, which I guess that it is. But I guess we've sort of gone off to the other extreme. But we do think it's important. And we do try to talk about it a lot because we want them to understand that there are a lot of different ways to be a family and that our way is not like the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. Harry's uh, best friend for two years in preschool was a little boy who was adopted by two lesbian moms. They were white and he was black. Um, he is. Black. You just took care of everything. Yeah, it's the triple. That's family. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but he actually didn't ask us too many questions. He only asked questions about the two moms thing. You know, where was the where was the where was the dad? And we talked about that some. Um, he didn't ask at all about the difference in their race, uh, and he certainly doesn't know what adopted means. Um, not that he shouldn't, but he he wouldn't. I don't think have you know had had the concept to ask. Uh, and I think we've also been shy if if there wasn't a direct question coming from him. But recently, Slate ran a column from our parenting columnist, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, about how to raise uh, non-racist kids, basically. <laughs> and although this that was particularly about race, I think it applies across the board where there have been many, many studies that show that uh, talking about difference is a much better idea than pretending we're all the same. Like there's, right. a, there's a liberal, you know, kind of progressive uh, inclination to to not talk about, you know, skin color or not talk about sexuality because we're all just humans, which is true. Right. We're all just Oh, humans. is that child black? <laughs> I didn't even notice. Exactly. Um, but that actually breeds um, that breeds the wrong things. <laughs> so we after after editing that story, I, I have thought a lot about that. And I think it, it's definitely a good idea to be proactive. Um, I do struggle with the language some like I don't know how exactly to say like exactly what the words are sometimes like different is fine but like you know even when i talk to my child about <clears throat> people of different religions it's very hard for me to explain like there what there are some types of people that do this and some types of i mean no that's not so i do i do find the the language hard still <laughs> I find it's just helpful to talk in terms only of, like, individual families. Like, this is just the way this family is, and this is the way this family is. This is the way this person is, and this is the way that person is. Like, as soon as I try and, like, divide it, like, some children's parents die in earthquakes, and then they're adopted by other children. Like, it always ends up going badly. Yeah. Um, so as a side note to this on the sort of the general topic of um, of, of other people's ways of being um, not – being uh, 
not being less than your way of being. We got a surprising, I thought, number of emails after our last episode where we talked about only children um, telling us that, no, we're wrong. Only children really do have it worse than multiples. And here's why from my own experience. From We got those emails from only children. We got those emails from people, people who are kids in multiples, families, or who have multiple kids. Um, and it was interesting. I thought it was really interesting that we got so many of these emails, and we love all of our listeners, and we are so grateful to all of you, but all of you who emailed are wrong. You're all wrong. Everyone is different. There is no one best way to be a family. Even if your experience is one way, another person's individual experience is going to be totally different based not on the same things as yours. So knock it off. But we love all of you. We love every single one of you. Yeah, people seemed annoyed that we didn't like defend as though we didn't defend our own decisions, as though we were saying we wished we only had one child. I mean, I know you kind of like could knock one off, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) but that's not what we were doing. Right. Right. Heeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, so um, anyways, thank you very much, Rose, for your question. I do think it's really important. Um, Science, TM, science shows that it is, in (laughs) fact, really important. and, um, and, And it's something that I think everyone should concentrate on. I hope that everyone concentrates on. Although if you don't, of course, there's no wrong way to be, although in that case, you're wrong. Okay, so let's uh, go on to our second topic. It is Mother's Day this weekend, this Sunday. So for many dads... Because dads are what's important about Mother's Day. (laughs) Mother's Day isn't just a day to honor your own mom, right? It's also a day to honor your baby mama. So, Allison, we are going to do a lightning round here for our second segment um, of seven possible Mother's Day gifts that a uh, mom could give another mom in a family or that a dad could give a mom in a family. So um, I am going to tell you the gift, and then I want you to um, rate it instantly on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being delighted if you receive this gift and one being disappointed or maybe even embarrassed on John's behalf. Okay. So are you ready? But I just want to clarify, this is definitely coming from my spouse. This is not coming from the kids where everything is. That is correct. Okay. That's correct. From your kids, everything's a 10, (laughs) no matter how like incompetent their spelling is. I love that rhinestone necklace. Right. Okay. So funny you should mention that because (laughs) number one is the Open Hearts by Jane Seymour Mother's Day Necklace from K Jewelers as seen in the email I just sent you, Allison. Please open your email and take a look. Okay. I'm going to my email. I'm very excited. Woo! Minus five. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, We'll post a picture on... um, uh, on the show page on Slate. It is a beautiful necklace with your choice of birthstones uh, in any combination for the children who you love. Uh, and it's a minus five. All right. Number two, a comically large gift certificate to a store that you enjoy shopping at. Oh, nine. Nine. Okay, great. Number three, a beautiful wait, wait, wait. book. Eh. Will you consider comically large? Oh, I don't know, like a hundred bucks. Oh, okay. Eight. Seven. Eight. Okay. Oh, so more so more comical is what you're saying. Okay, yes. good. Good to know. Number three, a beautiful $20 bouquet of flowers. Mm, three. Okay. Number four, lingerie. Zero. Okay. But still better than the necklace. Yeah. Good. Uh, number five, an entire day of uh, him doing all the shit around the house that you've been asking him to do forever. Uh, well, that would mean that I would then be parenting alone all day if he was doing all that. So I would also give that a a, a one. Okay. Uh, number six, planning an entire day of fun with the whole family, doing amazing activities together, all five of you sharing quality family time. 
three. Okay, the last, um, that last one, except for that you don't have to go. It's just him and the kids, and you can do whatever you want. So this is, I'll just give a number, but I then also must give a, a longer response. I guess, like, seven or eight. But the problem with this is that that's what I always think I want. And then I feel really sad. Like, I'll go to the park and take a walk, and I'll just feel like, <laughs> why am I spending, why do I want for Mother's Day to be away from my family? And I see all these families all together. I mean, this has been, this has happened a couple of years in a row, because that's always his, you know, that's always his thing. Like, he forgets to get me something, basically, and then he says, just go, go do whatever you want. And then I feel lonely. Yeah. So you need some mix of number so six and number seven. basically, I just seven. want a comically large <laughs> gift certificate to a store of my choosing or a check. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you, Allison. So I also wanted for Mother's Day for us each to tell um, a story about our moms. Um, I'm going to start. And uh, my mom does not always listen to this podcast, but uh, I may encourage her to listen to this one because this is a nice story, I think. Um, so one day, uh, my junior year in high school, uh, it was a, it was in the spring, uh, but in Wisconsin, that doesn't always mean that it's nice out because like baseball games get snowed out in Wisconsin all the time. But it was like a very rare hot day in May in Wisconsin. And I was in the kitchen of our house um, getting ready for school. And my mom said, okay, well, you are not going to school today. Um, it's way too nice out. You and I are going to the beach. Um, my parents had recently gotten divorced and my brother had moved out and my mom and I were sort of like settling into a life where it was just the two of us. Um, and I think she sometimes worried, you know, as custodial parents do that she was always the one telling me to do stuff. And then my dad would like take me to a Bucks game or whatever on Saturday. Um, and so the two of us went to the beach. She called me in sick to school. And I have a very vivid memory of her looking right at me when she said, oh, yes, Daniel isn't feeling well. Um, and we went to Bradford Beach downtown right on the lake. And it was totally great. It was really fun. We had a nice time. We ate lunch. I swam a little bit. We brought books. Um, and then the next day I was magically, I was feeling fine. I went back to school and I had a, an amazing sunburn. Um, and what makes the story special for me, I think, it's not just that we did it, which was really nice and is something uh, that really struck me at the time is that it was great that she did that. Um, but what really makes it special for me is that this remains one of my mom's favorite memories. Um, it's something that she brings up all the time. It's a story that she's already told to my kids as an example of like what our life was like when I was little. Um, and she brings it up a lot of times sort of apropos of nothing. I think for her, it really it remains like a great memory of a bright spot in which and what were sometimes, you know, difficult times in, in the post-divorce era. Um, so thanks for taking me to the beach, Mom. I will definitely always remember it. I love that story. And also I think it's strange and surprising that we've been doing this podcast for many months together, and I did not know your parents were divorced. We really do need to talk about divorce on this show. Oh, yeah, I guess we should. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I guess I've just buried it way down, and I don't <laughs> want to talk about it for reasons that, I mean, what, what do you, I don't even, what, uh, I don't even know. Okay, your turn. I'm actually also about to reveal something fairly personal in my story about my mother. Mine's a little heavier. Sorry, everyone. Uh, and my mom does listen to this podcast, so sorry, mom, if this is a little much. Uh, but I had an eating disorder in college and in my 20s, and that was pretty sucky for me, but also was really hard on my family. Uh, not that I ever really thought about them at all while I was going through it. But for my mom especially, uh, it was difficult, and she was really on a roller coaster with me. Either she wouldn't hear from me for long stretches of time when, as she would later tell me, she would wake up every morning with a tight chest. I could never understand that until now I have my own kids, and I can only imagine how tough that was for her and how worried she was. 
Um, and when she did hear from me, in more than kind of a cursory way, it was getting like a frantic phone call from me that I was sobbing on the other end of the line and desperate. So I don't want to get super heavy, but it was not fun for her. Um, and a lot of that time is kind of a blur, but I have one very strong memory of my mom being pretty much the best mom, even when I couldn't really give her anything in return, which was we were on a family trip to New York to visit my older sister who lived here, and my parents made reservations for dinner at a bunch of fun places, um, including Gramercy Tavern, and I couldn't deal, so I locked myself in the bathroom at Gramercy Tavern, and which must have been like really kind of humiliating <laughs> for my parents. Uh, it was a pretty fancy place, and uh, but my mom just kind of came in and sat with me and hugged me <laughs> for a long time, and then uh, the next day we went to a movie, and <laughs> I just very clearly remember my mom ordering... Popcorn, soft pretzel nuggets, nachos, and (laughs) M&Ms, and pretty much eating them all to show me, she thought, to show me that that it was totally fine, totally great with her for, like, me to eat anything I wanted because I had a thing, like, thinking, like, that she was thin and so I needed to be thin. And she just, you know, was basically gorging herself to the point of sickness to try to do to try to help me um and i remember thinking she was totally fucking nuts <laughs> and it didn't make a difference at the time but uh but now thinking back on it i just love her for it that's an amazing story and i bet it made some kind of difference in if not in the eating disorder side of things in the knowing that your mom would literally do anything for you yeah. side of things which it never hurts to be reminded of So thank you, moms. Thanks to all moms out there. Thank you, Allison, for being a mom. Thanks, Alia, for being the mom of my kids. Um, You're welcome. Thank everyone. (laughs) Uh, All right. So let's move on to recommendations. Allison, you got one. Okay, I do. But first, I want to ask listeners. I am and my kids are like in a rut with television shows. And you might say, okay, then have them go outside or read a book. But no, I need I need listeners to call I mean, to write in and let us know or call in if you want um, some good shows for kids, basically for kids that are five, because my younger son, my middle son, Sam, will watch whatever Harry watches. So new shows, please. We're all done with Wildcrats. We're all done with Jake and the Neverland Pirates. We're all done with those horrible like Ninjago Lego shows. Help me out here. We have Wait, are, are they all done with Ninjago or are you all done with Ninjago? I mean, we've watched them all like eight times and okay. I, I want to be done with them. Um, okay. Now my recommendation. <laughs> this is kind of a strange one. But uh, long ago before we had kids, my uh, during the time when Scooter Libby, the whole remember the whole Scooter Libby scandal? I vaguely remember such a thing. Yes. Okay. Well, my but John told my nephew – um, that Scooter Libby was a very bad man. And my nephew got really freaked out about this and thought, like, that Scooter Libby was an actual monster living in um, <laughs> in his grandmother's basement. Right. Uh, and we fostered this for a while until realizing that it was cruel and, and we had to, like, all go down the basement and do, like, this ritual thing of, like, looking under the bed and in the fireplace to make sure Scooter Libby wasn't there. Sure, the ritual cleansing of Scooter Libby <laughs> right, from the basement. Right. That's just a normal thing that all families go right. through. Right, so fast yeah. forward uh, some years, and Mitt Romney and Barack Obama are locked in a heated battle over the presidency. And we tried talking about this with Harry, and John tells Harry that Mitt Romney, like Scooter Libby, is a very bad man. 
Um, I objected to this. I don't really want to be, you know, characterizing in this way. But anyway, it became a theme in our family. And uh, Harry would ask a lot, why is he bad? Why does Grandpa, who is um, who is a, a, a conservative man, think he's good if he's bad? Uh, and, and so I feel like I've talked about this in another podcast now that I'm telling the story. Anyway, this is getting long. But um, I recently watched Mitt, the documentary about Mitt Romney. And although I don't agree with Mitt Romney's policies, Mitt Romney in that documentary and his family seems like quite a lovely man. Uh, I would be proud if my sons grew up to be like Tag and the crew. I forget the other kids' names. Uh, Josh, I think, is one of them. The Romney hotties. The Romney boys. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen with the Cook boys. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, I think, and also there was recently a study about how if you, you know, if you're, if you have very strong political beliefs that you impart to your children, they will go the, go the opposite way. So it could be also self-defeating. Um, so I just want to recommend, I mean, I'll recommend Mitt as a movie. It's, it's quite good, but also just recommend kind of, uh, not, uh, not sort of forcing your kids into your own political beliefs through language such as bad and evil. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. It's very good. Um, my recommendation is a board game. Okay. <laughs> it's a I'll product that. that you can buy in stores, Allison. Uh, it's a game. Um, it's a combination board game and app that I will never play in my entire life um, and that my children love dearly and have done almost nothing but play it for the last week since Lyra got it for her birthday. I love it because they love it so much and because they can play it completely unaided. Um, it is called Life Zapped and it is the game of life. You remember the game of life? I do. Um, but a combination board game and app version that you use on an iPad um, in which you get to like dress your character and dress your character's spouse of your gender choice. Your spouse can be whatever gender you want your spouse to be. Um, and you dress your children and you choose what kind of a wedding you have and you choose all the various accoutrements of your job. And it's filled with all these amazing notes like um, you're a musician. You just got you just wrote a hit song, earn $170,000, et cetera. And there's animation and sounds. And as long as your children are off in that room with their door closed, they will play it for hours and you will never hear from them and they will be delighted by it. So that is my recommendation. That sounds great. Life is apt a game that I recommend no adult ever play. Uh, all right. So that's our show. Um, thanks so much for listening. Please email us once once again at momanddad at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or guests or whatever. And if you've got a question, please give us a call at any hour at 424-255-RUDE. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Just search for Slate Mom and Dad uh, in the iTunes podcast page. Um, it helps people find the show. Please give us a good rating if you like us. Um, that also helps people find the show. Um, and we really want more subscribers. So if you like the show and you think that friends might like it, please recommend it to them. Um, we, uh, we would love to have more listeners and we would love to have you share the show with people you love or hate. I guess we don't care. You could hate them as well. Um, our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thank Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>